Open up to Colossians chapter 2, will you? And we'll continue our exposition through this marvelous epistle from the Apostle Paul. My name's Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'd hope to. There's a few new faces, so please do uh, stick around afterwards and get, uh, uh, get... Cut into some of the uh, great fellowship with some of the great crew around. And uh, no doubt that'll be a great blessing for you. As we've been going through the, uh, uh, this, this epistle from Paul to the Colossians, we've reminded ourselves fairly frequently of the context so that uh, we, are, we are as best framed as possible. And the situation is that Paul, through his ministry, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 19... Come on, got to, got, to, got to stay active. We're doing this together tonight. In Acts chapter 19, he was preaching five hours a day for about two and a half years in the city of... There's extra membership points here. Extra heavenly rewards in the city of... Ephesus. There we go, a couple of confident ones. Yes, in the city of Ephesus, he was preaching and many people were saved. And in fact, the whole region, the whole province, the whole, the whole country heard the gospel because of that ministry. And one of the ways that that happened is not that literally everybody heard Paul, but that many of them had been saved and went back to their own regions carrying the gospel. And that is what had happened in Colossae, in Hierapolis, and in Laodicea. A man by the name of Epaphras, who was saved under Paul's ministry, then went and planted churches in those areas. And it's 10 years later now that Paul is in house arrest in Rome, and Epaphras comes and visits him with concerns about the church that he is pastoring. And it seems, it seems that there's something about this false teaching. Now, I think, of course... Epaphras, as, uh, 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 I've been a pastor here for, for three years now. Uh, I'll say this without insulting anybody. It is impossible that somebody back then, without all of the additional resources we have today, somebody back then, without the completed uh, uh, canon of Scripture, that somebody back then, after 10 years, coming straight out of paganism, if my three years of uh, experience tells me anything, they definitely would have had some dumb ideas. I'll just say that lightly. In 10 years of ministry, Epaphras must have dealt with some silly heresies, with some positions, with some errors that were coming up. But he was pretty okay. He was pretty able. He was pretty, um, uh, 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 he was able to hold, hold himself and, and hold his way with those things. But there's something about the Colossian errors that he just can't quite put a finger on. There's something that as much as he's making a defense, these guys stick around and people in the church are, are giving an ear to them. They, they didn't cast them out and throw them out when it was clearly heresy in the most obvious of ways early on. But these ones, they're starting to niggle. They're starting to take the bait. And Paul, I need your help. And so as he writes this letter to give to Epaphras to head back, he starts, and and as we read the whole thing, we can sort of put together what the Colossian heresy seemed to be on the basis of what Paul was saying and what arguments he made. But what he does in the first part of 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 the epistle, so chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 7, is that he simply and gloriously extols Jesus Christ as the only sufficient, amazing God and Savior over all things, and that only in him is there true salvation. He proves and argues the divinity of Christ. He proves and argues the finished work of Christ, which we just sang about, that there is nothing that needs to be added to his salvation. He argues all of those things up until verse 
7 of chapter 2, where he then says, therefore, you know what the practical application of this is? Be rooted in him. Be established and built up in him just as you were taught. So, so the first part of the epistle is all about Jesus, his person and his work, his divine status, his human form, his div- and, and his finished work on the cross for us from where he was resurrected and ascended and rules and reigns as head over all things. That's been the first part. Now, last week, we looked at chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, and we saw him presenting the gospel in such a context and a way that was obviously subverting and opposing the heretical false teaching views. So he was saying that Jesus is he in whom all divinity dwelt bodily. The the heretics did not like that. They wouldn't have been able to amen that. He says that they were, uh, that um, Jesus in him, we have been filled. We don't need further filling, as the false teachers would claim. We have already been circumcised spiritually, therefore we don't need to be uh, wooed and wowed by these claims of extra circumcision according to the flesh. He says that we've already died and been raised. We already have full spiritual life. And Jesus has already triumphed over all demonic powers and authorities through his cross and resurrection. And so there he is, proclaiming the gospel in such a way that intentionally pushes back on the philosophical claims of the heretics. But tonight, in this section, verse 16 through 23, he gets a lot more practical on what Pastor Epaphras had told Paul was the clear practical teachings and implications of these Colossian false teachers. So look to verse 16 as we read now, and we see him address specific practical things a lot more explicitly. Verse 16, this is the word of the one true God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his own sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, whom the ho- whom, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refers to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant word in our midst this evening. Friends, what we have here tonight is a a powerful call to arms from the Apostle Paul that Christians would stand up for themselves. How often we have heard that Christians claiming and defending liberty that is purchased by Jesus Christ in the gospel that is frequently called selfish, 
that is called self-obsession and, 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 and being bothered with your freedom instead of laying down certain things for Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's mindset, he, he starts out here, let no one pass judgment on you. He'll say later, let no one disqualify you. He is calling the Christians to stand up and fight back, not because you have the right to do whatever you want, Christians, but more powerfully so, because the freedom that is being stolen away from you was something that is blood bought by the God-man at Calvary, Jesus Christ. The freedom that you're being thieved of the rules that are being applied on top of you, it's not up to you whether you're offended by them or not. Uh, Paul is not, is not so hot and heavy here because, because he thinks that the sensibility of the Colossians is being offended. He doesn't care about that. He's saying that it is the freedom that Jesus has established in the gospel. That is where the fighting needs to occur. That is where the dividing line has been thrown down by these false teachers. Often it has been the case throughout church history that people would, will add laws, will increase legalism, will add to what the Bible requires and commands of Christians, and the ways in which they're doing it are not all that big a deal. You know, it's kind of what we were all doing anyway. It's just good to have it in written form now to command us to do it. The, 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 let me try that again. The issue and the error is not so much what they're commanding, but the authority that they claim to be able to command those things. And so we see these very things play out in Colossae. Look at up. The first point that Paul makes is that since Christ is the substance of the whole Jewish shadow, therefore, reject legalism. Since Christ is the substance of what Judaism was but a shadow, therefore, reject Jewish legalism. Verse 16 and 17. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. Reject the authority that these people claim they have none. Oppose and throw down the accusation that they are bringing to you, they have no grounds to do that. Stand against them, like, 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 like Martin Luther, when he received the papal bull, which said, recant of your teachings, throw your books in the fire, repent for what you've said against the Catholic Church, and you will be forgiven. And he gathered his friends and his church and his students into the town, and he says, here's what I think of this papal bull blank, and he threw it in the fire. He was rejecting the man-made Demonically claimed authority that was not theirs to, to shut him up, that was not theirs to stop him from teaching what the Bible taught. And this is what Christians need to do. We need to be so firmly grounded in Scripture and in the gospel that we are able to push back and reject the intimidation that comes from legalism. Now, look, the, the, the specific things in the Colossian uh, context that they were being required to do was the food and drink and the festival and the new moon and the Sabbath. So, so there was things that they could and could not eat, could and could not drink, festivals and new moon celebrations and Sabbath days within the week that they had to keep. Otherwise, they were not either true Christians or they were not living the full godliness. Now, these were all leftovers of the Old Testament Jewish law that were being recycled. And as we've said each week, the Colossian heresy is not a clear-cut thing. It's mingled with paganism. It's mixed up with, 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 with strange philosophies and cultic behavior. And yet there is obviously a Jewish component in syncretism. 
that some of these philosophers had included some of the Old Testament law and sprayed it on top of their paganism in order to claim some kind of God-breathed, God-given laws straight from the Old Covenant. Now, Romans 14 speaks about similar things. The Sabbath day or, or the worship day that we choose, the holidays, really holy days, the food that we eat, the drink that we have. The, in, in, in Romans 14, it's specifically the meat and the wine. And, he, and Paul makes the case there that sometimes Christians can choose to abstain from certain foods and drinks and practices and days in order to not offend other Christians. Or, or, or when I say offend, I really mean tempt them into sin. That's not the case in Colossae. This is not a discussion about what you should or should not choose to drink or smoke or eat or do or write or engage. It's not a question of whether it's wise. Tonight it is the question of people who require their own conscience, require those abstinences of other people. It's a, left, it's a way of recycling Jewish law and applying it to people in the church. Now, it is so important to see how, how, how vital and fundamental and, and significantly Paul sees this issue. When Paul addresses this issue in 1 Timothy 4, he says that the people who are teaching the Christians to abstain from certain foods, right? think of how often that is done, or, or just how low-level, how much of a low-lying issue that seems to be, not a big deal, just requiring certain foods not to be eaten, and then telling people to abstain from marriage. Not everybody, just some people, and just in certain circumstances. All it is is marriage and food, that's all. And Timothy is told by Paul that that has come into the church through demonic teaching, deceitful spirits, through lying teachers who have seared their conscience. He just said it's the teaching of demons to not eat certain foods. Now, there's one way to read this wrongly and say, really, Paul? Really? Does it matter that much? Is my salvation so fickle, so fragile, that it matters for my soul what food I do or do not put into my body? Does it really matter? And of course, Romans 14 says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. That's not the big deal here. The big deal is not what you've eaten, not what you've drunk, not what you've done to or with your body in the past. That is not the question. The question that Paul is standing and staking his fight on tonight is the distinctiveness and the liberty within the new covenant. He is fighting for the freedom established and purchased for us in the gospel. And part of that freedom is from all of the additional ceremonial Israel-specific laws of the old covenant. And that is exactly where Paul goes. He says, here's why you need to reject those things. Not because you hate their festivals, not because you like the food that they're telling you not to eat, or you hate the food that they're telling you to eat. It's not because of that. It's because of Christ. Look at verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Or if we could be a bit more honest to the tense, the, the, the tensing of the Greek, it would be more that these were a shadow of the things that were to come, but Christ is the substance. In other words, Christ is the substance of what is to come or what has now come, but he used to be future. For the old covenant, they lived in the shadow 
They lived in the, in the momentary. They lived in those laws that were given to them for a time because they were still waiting for the substance to arrive. But we now, as Christians, after the cross, we look back to the Christ, not forward to the Christ. We see God with clarity now as he has presented himself to us in Jesus Christ, his son, who said to us, to see him is to see the Father. To know the gospel is to know the Son of God himself. We are no longer in the age of all-out mystery, of all-out shadow, of all-out vagueness and awaiting the coming. We have already experienced the arrival of the full substance, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a few things that means. That means that we need to realize that the Jewish law is what, we studied this briefly this morning in the LBC, but a lot of the Jewish Israel law is what we call positive law. We make a distinction in theology between positive law and moral law. Moral law is something that is right or wrong. It defines righteousness and sin. It defines that for all time and for all places and for all people, every ethnicity. No matter what covenant you're in before God, it is always moral or immoral, depending on whether it obeys or disobeys the Ten Commandments. They, they summarize true righteousness for us for all time. They'll, they'll never not be applicable because they represent God himself. Positive law, however, is every other law that God commands to people throughout time that is not essentially and in and of itself moral or immoral. So we will throw in here all the things that Paul has labeled, the certain days that were set aside for celebration, the certain foods that were clean or unclean, the certain drinks that they were allowed to have on different days, the certain festivals that they would engage in. All of those things were legally binding on the Israelites because they lived in that time that was devoted to that covenant and with that covenant, that law. But friends, that was always designed to expire. It was built into that system an insufficiency to save anybody. It was built into that system a momentary, temporary, non-eternal, non-perpetuity. Uh, non there you go. I'm great with my words tonight. Non-perpetuity. In other words, it was never designed to be forever. The temple was built in order for one day to be torn down. The Davidic line was established in order one day to culminate in Christ and then not come with another Jewish Davidic bloodline king. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was established for a time until, Hebrews tells us, the Melchizedekian priesthood would be established, which means, in other words, the divine priesthood. The sacrifices of the lambs and the bulls and the goats were given for such a time until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would come. And then what happens to the shadow when the spotlight comes center and full ball? The shadow disappears. It doesn't get sidelined until such a time as it is entirely reestablished. That would make it the substance. It doesn't hang around so that once you enter into the substance of Christ, you need also to put on top of you those old systems. Paul here says there is no benefit to engaging in the shadow when you already have the full substance. Hebrews 10 verse 1 uses the same language pointing to the same reality. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He says there's no substance anymore to those old things. We're no longer awaiting a Messiah in Israel through the line of Abraham. We're now after all of that in the age when the Messiah now blesses every family on earth through the seed of Abraham and that generational blessing comes through faith and faith alone. So he says there is nothing to be gained by returning to the shadow. Hebrews 8.13 says that that which has passed away is now obsolete. There's nothing positive to be gained by adding a different covenant's positive law. In other words, if 500 years before Christ, you went around trying to tell people that they don't need to obey the Sabbaths, that they don't need to obey the festivals, and they don't need to obey the food and drink laws, you'd be a heretic. If 500 years later, You start walking around saying that people do need to obey those food laws and do need to obey those sacrifice laws. You are again a heretic because it is no longer the covenant that we are bound to. Our covenant is the covenant of Jesus Christ from whom we receive freedom from the Old Testament positive law. So for the practical guys in the room, the the Christians here who are saying, so what are our standards for food and drink and celebrations and what we wear, it's fairly simple. The New Testament says for the, for the eating laws, what you can and cannot eat, there is absolutely no requirement, just not well done, steak must be less than that. You can eat whatever you want with Thanksgiving. It is a necessary side dish. You must always eat with Thanksgiving so that you give glory to God. What can we drink? You can drink whatever you want any beverage of any alcohol percentage and of any source and of any nationality. You can drink, you can even drink Italian wine. Now, I don't say that lightly because it's not all that great. You can eat whatever you drink, sorry, whatever you wish, so long as it does not lead to any sin in drunkenness or tempting your fellow brothers and sisters to sin. What clothing, fabrics can we engage in? What holidays can we do? What festivals can we engage in and feasts? You can enjoy and celebrate whatever cultural or religious, if it's Christian, uh, kind of uh, holidays that you want, as long as you don't celebrate sin or idolatry, and as long as you don't require of other Christians to celebrate in those Christian holidays. And the worship laws. How do we worship God? What do we do these days if we don't have the, all of the Deuteronomic, Levitical, Exodus laws? To, how, how do we now meet with God? Jesus says in John 4 that the only requirement, you can, you can worship anywhere now. Anybody can worship. The only requirement is now that we do so through spirit and truth. This is the liberty. This is the freedom that now comes to be celebrated by those who know and love the gospel. So for that reason, because Christ is the substance and you're foolish to want any of the shadow, therefore reject this Jewish legalism that was added on top of them. But secondly, look at verse 18 to 19, and we see that Christ is the source of all spiritual growth. Therefore, we must reject pagan asceticism. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. This is sort of language taken from Olympic umpiring, when someone would be hired to stand on the line and see if the discus thrower overstepped. 
to see if the javelin thrower overstepped, to see if the, the, the hurdle runner hit too many bars or to see if, the, uh, see if the long jump runner stood over the line and they would call it out and say, you crossed the line, you're out, no reward, no, no qualification for you. So also there are Christian legalists who sit around and follow you around with a whistle and a, and, 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 and a, and a stick to point out every error and call you out and say, you're disqualified, you're no longer in because you stepped over our phony laws. He says, don't let them do that. Do not let them disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in details, or going on in detail about visions. Here's the reality. Nature abhors a vacuum. Many of you have studied maybe high school physics or further on, you'd know the rule, maybe it's Bernoulli's or, or other related principles, that nature despises a vacuum. Wherever you take something away, and you've experienced this digging in sand, you, you take away one clump of sand, and what happens to the rest? It, it fills that vacuum. You can't, it's not quite like snow. You, you can't dig underneath all of the dry sand and not expect the dry sand to fill in the hole. It's like that with uh, even weather and even atmospheric pressures. When, when a vacuum is created and there is a lower pressure in one area, the other molecules and the other uh, 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 elements will seek to quickly fill it because nature pushes towards the equilibrium. It's like this in leadership. Sometimes you've experienced this in the, in the, in the workplace, maybe in the school, maybe in the sports team, maybe in the church, that when there is weak leadership or a strong leader is removed... There is now a leadership vacuum into which every young buck wants to throw himself in and think that he is now the next guy. Nature abhors a vacuum. And it's the same with our applied theology. Where you do not have a sound and robust view, a biblical view of Jesus Christ's finished work and his divine God-man nature, something else will rush into that vacuum rush into that philosophical mind space and fill it. That is to say that every non-Christian or every Christ-less religious philosophy, because they do not have the great revelation of the Word of God, something flows into that vacuum. Something has to flow into the vacuum of, we do not have the God-man bringing God and man together. What goes into that vacuum? Our good works, our reaching up to God and other such things. If we do not have a finished work on the cross, and that is now a, a vacuum, what has to rush into there? But our works, our deeds, which need to fill it up. Applied theology is so important because if we have wrong theology, bad theology and bad applied theology will race in to fill it. And I say all of that to say this. Sanctification is defined in two ways. This is what the Westminster Confession and Catechism will say. Sanctification is both living to righteousness and dying to sin. That's what true, spirit-wrought sanctification is. Living to righteousness, dying to sin. Where you do not have a true and Christ-based sanctification, you will have a Christ-less form of sanctification. And what you will have is instead of mortification, which is the putting the sin to death, and instead of vivification, which is living to righteousness, you will have pagan versions of both. Put pause on that. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. The Gnostic heresy, which is what seemed to be circling uh, in its early stages in Colossae, was, was at its base a dualism which basically meant they saw all of the world in two divisions. 
There was the spirit realm, which was essentially good. There was the physical realm, which was essentially evil. What does sanctification look like in a world where there is this dualistic dichotomy? To die to sin looks like damaging your own body because it's the sin. Living to righteousness looks like, in this demonic version of sanctification, living to righteousness looks like engaging in extra super spiritual activities because the flesh is bad and spirit is good. No matter what morality it was, goodness is no longer defined by the law of God. It's just defined by spiritual activity, good or bad, sexual or non-sexual, moral or immoral. It doesn't matter as long as it is spiritual. So this is what we call asceticism. And we'll actually see this right here in this verse. If we just go back, see it, and then you'll see why I'm making this context. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which means uh, brutality to the body, sometimes through neglecting joy, neglecting good foods, neglecting marriage, neglecting beautiful sights, neglecting enjoying the creation of God. Creation is evil, destroy your body. Sometimes it was more actively against it, and it was actually whipping. It was self-flagellation. It was damaging the flesh, starving the flesh to the point of breakdown because it's the sin. So that's asceticism. And then the other side of it is the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. This is what was happening in this demonic counterfeit sanctification. Destroy your body, that's dying to sin. Live up all kinds of experiences in the spirit, and that is vivification. That is putting life to righteousness and living the way God really intended for you too. And and sometimes this was worshiping those angels. Other times it was just going into ecstatic states and visionary experiences in the cultic temples in order to attach yourself, experience, and unify with the divine state of mind or the divine spark feeding that spiritualism. And look at, look at what Paul calls where, where the Colossians did not have a functional applied theology of true gospel sanctification. Therefore, this kind of thing sounded attractive. This kind of nonsense sounded attractive because they did not have the renewed minds that would allow them to fill in that vacuum with the truth. And so actually what Paul calls it at the, uh, uh, towards the end of verse 18 here, he says, these people are puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Here's what's funny about that. He's not denying that these people are having crazy experiences inside their head. He's just saying it's all hot air. It's methane. We have the same thing happen to your bowels and it brings about gas. That's what they got going on. And it's in their spirit and it's in their mind and they're, 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 they're loving it. They're experiencing all these kinds of reactions and, 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 and experiences in their head and all it is is hot air. They're just puffed up colons. That's what they are. And you know what they are? He says where they are claiming to be extremely spiritual, he says they're puffed up according to their sensuous mind. Maybe the translation is kind of lost on us. It's otherwise translated their carnal mind or their fleshly mind. It is amazing how spiritualistic carnality can often appear. Sometimes the most carnal, the most most fleshly, the most 
the, the person who is most uh, 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 enslaved to their bodily passions is the person who is going on about the visions that they had of Michael the archangel who spoke to them and, who, and, and using those things to apply other laws to other people and inquire, acquire for themselves spiritual authority and power. There's no one more carnal than the false apostles. There's no one more carnal than the guy who walks around church telling the gal she needs to marry him because God told him. There's no one more carnal than the person who, who doesn't read the Bible so much, but I live the Bible because I have God meet me every day in my prayer closet. There's nothing more fleshly than that. And Paul flips their notions on their head. He says, they, in all of their fake sanctification, are in fact just feeding the flesh and puffed up with gases. And next, <clears throat> and, and because of all of that, we see that the, 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 the truth would be, the, the genuine would be, the, 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 the opposite to all of this is growth that comes from our relationship to Jesus Christ. So they, they, are, they are addicted to all of these ridiculous spiritualism and all of this ridiculous asceticism because they don't have the genuine thing, which is growth that comes from God through Christ. So look at verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 19. He says, they're doing all that and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Friends, we are not saying tonight that God in heaven, so, so separated from us, doesn't actually somehow engage by his Holy Spirit, his people, to bring us further into divine life and spirituality. He absolutely does. But he doesn't do it through asceticism and visions. He does it through our vital connection with, in our mind, heart, and behavior, Jesus Christ, the head. This is, this is what we, we can call the ordinary means of grace. The only way you grow as a Christian is as much as you look to, behold, understand, and then live in light of the full gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can't articulate the gospel, a vision will be of no help to you. Even if you're truly saved. Even if God took you to the seventh heaven today and showed you the marvels of heaven and then sent you back down here to live your Christian life and you still, still couldn't articulate justification by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account, you are still the most immature you've ever been. Worse so, in fact. What we need is a renewal of the mind so that we are joined to our head, not just spiritually in a positional status, not just that we are saved, but also that we are holding fast to, that we are joining ourselves to and leaning into the relationship that we have between our head, Jesus Christ. This is, again, what we call the ordinary means of grace, that God has ordained for us usual ways that the head feeds the body. It's the nervous system. It's the cardiac system. It's the hormonal system. And in those simple ways, the body keeps the, sorry, the head keeps the body alive. Well, there's a spiritual version of that. It's called the ordinary means of grace. The word, sacraments, fellowship, and prayer. Here's how easy it is. You reject asceticism. You reject spiritual uh, uh, visions and all sorts of things like that. What you devote yourself to is a church that preaches the word and you're there frequently. Every time the doors are open, you're there. You commit yourself to prayer by which you behold Jesus Christ, pray his word, and ask for those things that he has told you to ask. You commit yourself to fellowship 
where other Christians pursuing Jesus Christ encourage and edify you. And you commit yourself to the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and you engage in them as the Bible tells you to do so. And in those very simple ways, friends, you will have a growth that comes not from a guru, not from some spiritual expert, but from God himself through the head of Jesus Christ. There's a biological imagery that we could pull out of this, which is actually pretty funny. Paul is saying of these people, you'll see at the, end, at the beginning of verse 19, that they, for all of their spiritual expertise, are not holding fast to the head. In other words, their spirituality is decapitated. They're trying to pursue a health while the body has no head. You can get a little graphic for a moment. Imagine you're a first responder and you come to a crash scene and you run up and you've done first aid course and you think you might be of some help and then somebody tells you, don't bother, the guy has no head. Sad story, but it's just a, an imagery so you don't need to get too, too depressed. And you go, okay, well, call the time of death. But then, Sophie over here, she's done an essential oils course and she's done a first aid that her uncle who lives in the Bunyan Mountains designed, and she comes in and says, you know what, head or no head, health matters. So she starts doing a health questionnaire. Was he a vegan? Uh, how much protein did he have? How much red meat did he have? Uh, and she goes down to the legs and goes, yeah, I, I see the issue. He's tight in this ankle. She starts doing her acupuncture on her shin, and she starts doing the right pressure points and, and just looking for signs of life. And she gets out the lavender and she, she applies it. And, you know, she, you know she, was he double vaxxed? And what all, you know, she's asking all the right questions. And she's thinking, there's a way to attain this guy to full health. And the head doesn't matter. Stop being so old-fashioned to care if the head is attached. That's the heretics. That's every version of trying to gain and grow in holiness that does not have as its core and its focus an uplifted, exalted theology of Jesus Christ. It's headless. It's decapitated. It's useless. And these people are trying to think that they can engage and gain from such a ridiculous approach. So Christ is not just enough for our salvation. Christ is also enough to maintain our holiness. He is our head, and therefore from him we receive growth. So we can reject all kinds of pagan asceticism, even when it calls itself Christian. And then look at verse 20. And here's where we see <clears throat> that Christ has, make, has made you dead to the world or marked you as dead to the world, and therefore you can reject spiritual deadness. You can reject dead spiritual religion. Look at what he says in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, we looked at this briefly last week. When he says elemental spirits of the world, he means the non-divine, non-righteous, but rather evil and worldly spirits that are at play in the world to deceive people in false religion. The principle that he's saying is that to everybody that Christ has, has brought into salvation, whether or not you were in the occult, whether or not you were in some demon, you know, externally worshipping demons, regardless of all of that, anybody outside of Christ is in some way serving dead spirits. That is to say, in Pauline language, that spirits that are spiritually dead, that is everybody, 
born, born from their mother's womb, we're all born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people serve fallen spirits. That's just how it is. That, that, that's, a, that's a universal principle. Now we might think of all the ways that this showed up in the ancient world, this very old-fashioned way of thinking. But, but yeah, you know, old pagans, they used to worship fallen spirits. They, they would give their children over to, to sacrifices on the altars. They would sprinkle themselves with goat's blood and hang up the body and the skull. They would dress themselves with bones and they would engage in all kinds of demon worship and they would, they would even give themselves drug-induced visions of demons and ecstasy. They would engage in sexual immorality and musical dances and the beating of drums and bodily torture. And that's all ancient, stupid, ignorant ways that dead spirits worship and serve fallen spirits. And you would think maybe that in our enlightened world, in our Western world, in our, in our evolved world, we just don't do that stuff so much until, of course, you actually assess the world that we live in. And you see around us child sacrifice in the form of abortion, occultic practices, new age veneration of interdimensional angels, which is common, drug addiction, which is uh, uh, akin to ancient pharmacania, drug addiction, substance abuse that often lead to spiritual kinds of experiences, mediums and palm readings by the hippies at the, at the uh, uh, markets, sex parades, sex cults, skyrocketing rates of pornography, perverts grooming kids in public, and, and all of this is not even to mention the actual explicit world religions. That's just Western culture. And you realize that this is an inescapable reality. All people who are spiritually dead serve fallen spirits, whether they know it or not. And Paul here is saying that in Christ, we were made dead to that way of living. When Christ died to those things, you did too. I think a good analogy of this is, is as if you were a part of a, in, in, a, in a downtrodden, down and dirty city, not unlike our own, and you were in this city and, and you were a, maybe you're a gal and you were serving and servicing in some of the most explicit and illicit and horrible to imagine ways, all kinds of men and, and drug lords. And, and maybe if you were a guy, you were there and you were killing people and burying them and disposing of their bodies and threatening people and killing man, woman and child, whoever got in your way because you had from a young age been, been groomed into this, this gang warfare. And imagine you had an uncle who worked for you know, the, 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 drug, the, the, the drug fighting agency of the government or something like that. And he was able to sort of uh, 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 slither himself in, in a covert way, through an operation, into your gang. And he was able, in an act of risky mercy to you, fake your death. He was able to make it look as if you had been killed and then he ships you away with a fake ID and a fake new life and fake name to a new country, new state, new city and you are no longer bound by oath or by blood covenant to any of those old ways of living. And then he comes to visit you just a week later after uh, re uh, establishing your release from that way of life and what he finds on every post in the city is your mug up on a piece of paper with a Take a tab if you want more information. And what you said there is, any gangs, any brothels, any, any, any gang lords and drug lords, do you want my help? I'm of great service. Please employ me. Again, if he found that, he would be so, so viscerally frustrated, he would grab you, tear down every one of those advertisements he could and say to you, I faked your death. 
Because of me, you're dead to that world. You had an opportunity to be free of that world. What are you doing enslaving yourself, putting yourself at risk to something you have no need to do that to? And that's how Paul is writing. He says, Christ, when he died to the world and to its spirits and to its authorities, you died with him. Why are you living like people who did not die with him? Why are you voluntarily going back to that way of living and submitting yourself to regulations, which is the next point that he talks about here in verse, at the end of, uh, sorry, in verse 21. Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Why have you resubmitted yourselves to those? That is his frustrated question. Because Christ is the only one who can stop the indulgence of the flesh. Therefore, and this is our last point, we need to reject false holiness, pseudo-holiness, man-made holiness, since Christ is the actual power to stop the indulgence of the flesh We need to reject false holiness. And so he goes on in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If everything that he has said about our being dead to the world in Christ and him being the true head from whom we should receive holiness, if all of this is true, his question is very frustrated. Why are you resubmitting yourselves to those things? There is nothing to gain there. It was all spiritually toxic. But he gives a word of pastoral understanding. He says, I get it. When you're an immature Christian, when you have a vacuum in your theology, maybe you have a vacuum in father figures and role models and spiritual mentors, whatever, but you can look at these guys who go to extreme lengths to fast, 40 plus days, months at a time, they've never touched red wine, they've never touched meat, all these amazing things, it can seem impressive. And you know what, when they talk about their visions, and sometimes they tell you true prophecies, They tell you things that you are sure that this was not just a made-up story. This guy had a spiritual vision. Maybe he's done miracles in front of you. Sure, I know for a fact that it seems and it's a little bit tempting. But friends, it's just an appearance. It's just a humanly impressive self-made religion, but it is not, in fact, valuable. And here's how he proves it. Look at the very end of verse 23. He says, for all the show that it has... It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's these guys that get millions of dollars in tithings because they tell all the people their amazing visions and lead these amazing worship crusades. It's them that have hookers in every single town. No joke. One, uh, fairly recently, I uh, spoke on stage with a guy at a, an event that I had no deal organizing, and I'm going to be careful with how I say it, unless I get myself in trouble. Found out later, this, this charismatic guy, this guy who, who was saying he's going to lead revival in the world, and every Australian needs to get behind him because God has promised him a million souls, went up and Googled him, because I know his type, discharged from his church fellowship many years ago for having hookers in every single town that he charged every person $60,000 a pop for him to speak in. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's these people who have this grandiose visions and these grandiose language about their own spirituality and all of this fake holiness and additional laws for Christians. It's actually them that are enslaved to the flesh the most. There's always going to be secret sin. You cannot have bad theology without bad applied theology, and you cannot have bad applied theology without pockets of sin and addiction in their life. It's always the case. You just got to give it some time. But even those, even the people that sometimes were, were tempted to look around the church, and, and maybe it's not legalism that they're doing, but it's self-implied or self-applied legalism. We see disciplines they have, we see things that they do, things that they don't do, and we just say, well, that's holiness. We apply ourselves to it. We try and apply that to ourselves and, and conform to external outward commands. And they are, in fact, of no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. I, I think that false systems have so much tempting power because Christians hate their sin so much. If you held up some strange, expensive, weird, painful process to be able and advertise it to, to young Christian guys, never ever have a lustful thought again. Here's my 10 step thing, and it has lots of pain, it's super expensive, takes three months to do off in some mountain somewhere, and you're in a cave. I tell you what, many Christian young men would be tempted. Not because they're so indulging in the flesh, but because they indulge in the flesh and hate it and want freedom from the flesh. And what Paul is saying here is this is all bait on a false hook. Do not take it. As much as they promise you the freedom from your sin and the true actual godliness, friends, it is far more simple than all of that. It is the ordinary means of grace. Assure yourself, remind yourself daily and more so of the good news of the gospel. Do you sin frequently? Do you sin more than you wish you did? Are you still finding addiction and, and, and pleasures and drives within you that are, that are more powerful than you wish they were? Yeah, okay. Do you have the imputed righteousness of Christ in your account before God? If you remind yourself of that, the fleeting pleasures of sin will fade away. Are you more weak against temptation and you're always walking away from social interactions or, or conversations or times online and you're always thinking, I sinned more than I should have. Ah, I'm so annoying. I hate, I'm so weak. Like temptation just pops up and I'm in. Do you despise your own weakness, friends? Do you recall chapter one that you have the infinite glorious might of God within you by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ? Remind yourself of that. And you will not only be empowered against sin, but also immune against false teachings about holiness. It is so important to connect ourselves to the head who is Christ. To remember the gospel, be reminded of the gospel frequently, because when we have that, we have immunity against these false teachings and false systems of holiness. But you know the condemnation to a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors, maybe a lot of parents, is that while Paul will say, the uselessness of all of this religion is that you can fake it and tick every box that you've just laid down and still be unsaved. And far too many parents, far too many pastors, far too many Christian mentors hear that and say, yes, that's true, I don't care all that much. I would rather kids that are predictable and clean and neat and obedient and unsaved I would rather a church that is predictable and clean and neat and, 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 and well-behaved, whether or not they go to heaven is not my deal. 
So many people would prefer that than the unpredictability and the messiness that often comes with true, spiritually revived religion, and it's a condemnation on the legalists in our midst. Friends, love the gospel and defend with your life the freedom that is purchased in the gospel. And if you're among us tonight and none of this is true for you, you are still enslaved to your flesh. You do still live in your sin. Maybe you've even tried, like these guys are teaching, to add all sorts of Christian rules and laws and behaviors and external ways of living onto your life to try and gain salvation. Now is the day that you not only reject your sin, you also reject your self-righteousness and the laws that you've built up to try and bring you to God. Today is the day that you must repent of sin and self-righteousness, rebellion and religion, and bend the knee to Jesus Christ, the only one who is able to save, the only one through whom God gives forgiveness, who came for us, lived in our place, died for our sins, rose again gloriously, and now reigns and rules to give forgiveness to everybody who draws near to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word of Paul tonight that both rebukes us and encourages us, that tells us that all of our man-made, all of our bad applied theology, all of our apparently wise but really self-made religion is all for naught. It is useless and it is more than useless. It is in fact toxic to our souls. We read this, Lord God, and we, we each, by your Holy Spirit, see ways and, 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 and acknowledge ways that we have added laws to other Christians, or that we have added laws to our own soul in order to make us like and look like other Christians. But God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would carve away all of that, all of that added scaffolding, all of that unbiblical requirement, all of that... Uh, addition to the gospel and to your law that we have applied to ourselves in order to try and bolster up our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would melt it all away because the only thing that gives our souls growth is Jesus Christ. The only way that we can strengthen our soul, and it takes longer than we wish, but Lord God, the only thing that can strengthen our soul truly from you is the knowledge and the likeness of Jesus Christ. I do pray, Lord God, that you would clarify that in our minds. It would make us focused more intently on the gospel and beholding Jesus in the gospel. And therefore, Lord God, that you would make us a people that give each other grace, that make peace with each other, that give each other freedom and liberty. And Lord, look out for one another because your gospel is just so glorious. To those who are still dead in their sins, to those who do not know Jesus, and to those who, Lord God, are living in their false religion and still under the sway of the elemental spirits of the world, would you please give salvation? Would you please tonight, for the first night ever, give to them assurance that in Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven and their soul is secure? Would you give salvation tonight, Lord God, according to your rich and glorious mercy? For it is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. And everybody said, amen.